1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. For as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, we now humbly come into your presence to hear you speak to us from your word. Father, we come with fear and trembling because we know who we have to do with. You, the holy God, the creator and sustainer of all the universe, who by the power of his word brought all things into existence. And so we come now, Father, as your children, desirous that you would speak things into existence in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives that currently do not exist. Father, we know that's the type of God that you are so that you can bring glory and honor to your name. And so as we come now, we confess our sins and acknowledge that we have no right to come in and of ourselves, but we also come boldly because Jesus has earned the right for us to come. And so we come with great joy and gladness to hear you speak now. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, so that we might be drawn into a closer relationship with you and with each other. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, after a brief break last week, we pick up where we left off in our study of the first epistle of John. And if you recall, what we've seen so far in our study is that John is writing to a church that is experiencing a crisis. And here's the crisis. Leaders from within the church have strayed from the apostles' teaching about the gospel. In other words, these leaders were teaching falsehoods about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And so they were teaching a false gospel, which was really no gospel at all. And then after they had preached this false gospel, they went on to then leave the church. Now, we don't know whether they were kicked out or if they left of their own accord, but either way, 
they left. And presumably, they took some other folks in the church with them. And so as you can imagine, this church was in turmoil. This church was struggling. And you see, that's the reason why John wanted to write this letter to them. He wanted to encourage them and exhort them in the midst of their sufferings. And one of the main ways that John went about doing that was by giving these believers three tests, or as Pastor Chad has been calling them, heart checks. And the purpose of each of these heart checks was to affirm and assure the believers that they indeed had fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and also with the apostles. And so John gave them these tests under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that they could examine themselves and be assured that they truly were in fellowship with God. And if you stop and think about it, you can imagine why these tests would have been so welcomed by the church that John was writing to. Because one of the questions that they were most certainly asking themselves was, well, how do we know who the true believers are? Are we who have remained the true believers, or are those who have left the true believers? How can we know? And you see, that's why John gives them these three tests, because he wants them to know with absolute certainty that they belong to God. And so very briefly, I want to remind you of the two heart checks that we've already looked at. The first heart check was the vertical heart check. And the purpose of the vertical heart check was to test whether or not they loved God by keeping his commandments. Now, by doing that, John wasn't teaching some form of perfectionism or the idea that we can perfectly obey God's law. As a matter of fact, John actually guards against that error by telling us that repentance will be a regular part of our Christian lives. And the reason for that is because even as Christians... John makes it abundantly clear to us that we are still going to sin. And so what John tells us then is that if we truly know God, when we sin, we will repent of it and turn to faith in Christ as our advocate, knowing full well that as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that was the first heart check. And the second heart check was the horizontal heart check. And the purpose of the horizontal heart check was to test whether or not they loved God by loving the brothers, by loving the church. Because what John clearly teaches is that if you love Jesus, then you will also love his bride, the church. Because they're a package deal. And so what that means then is that you can't say, oh, sure, I love Jesus. It's just his people that I can't stand. I can't stand. You can't say that. Because if you say that, then what you're revealing is that you don't really love Jesus. Because if you love him, then you will necessarily also love his church. So those are the two heart checks that we've already looked at. And today what we're going to look at is the third heart check. And in essence, the third heart check is a, a, a doctrinal heart check. In other words, it's a test about what you believe. 
And the purpose of this test is to see whether or not we are holding fast to the apostles' teaching as it is revealed to us in God's word. And this is an important test because while Christianity is certainly more than just intellectually assenting to a set of doctrines, it also isn't less than that. In other words, what John is telling us here is that a vital part of being a Christian is holding fast to the apostolic teaching. And so what that means then is that you can't be a Christian and just believe whatever it is that you want. It doesn't work that way. Instead, we must yield ourselves to the truth of God as, in, as of, I'm sorry, the truth as God has revealed it to us in his holy and inerrant word. And you see, the reason that John gave the church this doctrinal heart check is because he knew that some had already strayed. He knew that some had arisen in the church and tried to contradict and oppose the apostolic teaching. And this caused John a lot of concern because they didn't just stray themselves. They also got others to stray with them. And so what John is doing then in this passage is he's warning the church not to follow them. Because what John understands is that these false teachers aren't just misguided do-gooders. They're not just well-intentioned simpletons. No, they're wolves. And you see, what John knows full well is that when wolves attack the flock, you don't try to sit down and have tea with them and reason with them. And you don't try to change their minds. Instead, for the glory of Christ and the protection of his flock, the wolves must be driven away. And do you know why that is? You know why the wolves must be driven away? Because their goal is to oppose Christ. Everything about them is against Christ. Which is why John calls them what? He calls them the anti-Christs. And so if we love the shepherd and we love the sheep, then we must, we must, we must drive away the wolves. Because as John Calvin once said, it is the duty of a good and diligent pastor not only to gather the flock, but also to drive away the wolves. And so no one can faithfully teach the church unless he is set on banishing errors wherever he finds them spread by seducers. And you see, that's exactly the kind of pastor that the Apostle John was. He cared enough about the flock to use these tests not only to encourage and assure the believers, but also to drive away the wolves who are the Antichrists. And so as we look now at how John does that, I want us to answer three questions about the Antichrists. Three important questions about the Antichrists. When will the Antichrist come? Who will the Antichrist be? And how will the Antichrists be opposed? So first, let's answer the question, when will the Antichrist come? Look at verse 18 with me. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
Now, what we should notice right away is that John answers our question very directly. When will the Antichrist come? John tells us in the last hour. As a matter of fact, he tells us that twice here in this one verse. But the question that naturally follows is, well, then when is the last hour? Or what period of time does the last hour entail? Well, to answer that question, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. And what we find here is that Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And the reason he's preaching is to explain the significance of why the church is speaking in tongues. And he starts his explanation by quoting Joel chapter 2. Peter says, but this was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so here he quotes Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now you see, what Peter is doing here is he's telling the crowd that God is fulfilling now what he had promised back then through the prophet Joel. And so, through the speaking of tongues at Pentecost, God was fulfilling his promise to pour out the Holy Spirit. And when did Joel say that would happen? In the last days. And so what that means then is that Pentecost was inaugurated, or I'm sorry, Pentecost started or inaugurated the last days. That's what Peter is saying here. In other words, the last days began after Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand and then sent the Holy Spirit. And the last days will end when Jesus comes back again. But how does that help us answer our question here about when the last hour is? Well, here's something that you need to understand. The last days, by and large, are equivalent to what John calls the last hour. Because for the most part, those phrases can be used interchangeably. And so what that means then is that we've been in the last days or the last hours for the last 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, we are currently in the last hour because Jesus hasn't returned yet. But you see, if that's true, then in what sense are these the last days or the last hour? Because the reality is that these days have lasted millennia. And these hours have lasted centuries. So how are we to think about this? Well, you see, what Scripture is teaching us here is that the last days have less to do with chronology and more to do with theology. In other words, it's as if God has revealed his calendar to us in the scriptures, not in chronological days and hours, but in great and major theological events. Events like the creation of all things, and the fall of mankind, and the flood and the calling of Abraham, and the exodus, and the giving of the Israelite kings, and the Babylonian captivity, and then the coming of Jesus, 
and his death and resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Those are some of these events. But you see, now that all those have happened, there's only one more event left on God's calendar. And do you know what that event is? It's the return of Christ. And you see, since there's only one great event left as far as God's revealed calendar is concerned, these are the last days. And this is the last hour. And so what John wants us to realize is that as we now wait for that final event, for the return of Christ's, many antichrists will arise. As a matter of fact, John says that the presence of so many antichrists is actually proof that we are in the last hour. He says in verse 18, because so many antichrists have now come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And you know, in spite of how ominous all this sounds, I actually think that John is pointing this out to us to encourage us. I mean, certainly he's writing this to warn us of the opposition that we can expect, but I also think that he's writing this to encourage us that the enemy is fighting so fiercely because it knows that its defeat is at hand. Because the reality is that Jesus has already decisively defeated our enemies. Because through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus has defeated our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil. Now don't misunderstand me. The enemy hasn't been fully and finally eradicated yet, but it has been decisively defeated. And because of that, the enemy knows that one day it will be fully and finally eradicated. And you see, because it knows that, because it knows its final ending is coming soon, it is throwing everything it's got at the church. I mean, it's a bit like how some of the most fierce fighting in World War II happened after D-Day. Because on D-Day, the Allies had struck the decisive blow. But it wasn't until VE Day that the war was finally over. And you see, between those two times, between D-Day and VE Day, the the most um, difficult fighting happened on the part of the, the Axis powers. They fought tooth and nail to stop the Allied advance. Even though they knew that they would eventually lose, they still fought harder than ever. And you see, that's the exact same approach of the flesh and the world and the devil against the church. Until Christ returns, they are going to fight us tooth and nail, even though they know Christ's promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Still, there will be war. And do you know why? Because, brothers and sisters, we are in the last hour. And so, church, we should be both warned and encouraged by this. On the one hand, we should be warned because this is the time when the Antichrist will come. But on the other hand, we should be encouraged because we know that their defeat is certain and will soon take place. So we've answered the question, when will the Antichrist come? Second, let's answer the question, who will the Antichrists be? Who will the Antichrist be? Look at verses 19 through 23 with me. They went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, it's important for us to realize that back in verse 18, John tells us about two different classes of antichrists. There's the antichrist, singular, and then there's the antichrists, plural. And it's no secret that throughout the history of the church, a great deal of time has been spent trying to identify the antichrist, singular. And while John acknowledges that we need to be aware of the Antichrist singular, he spends most of his time talking about the Antichrists, plural. And that shouldn't really surprise us because that's who John's audience is primarily dealing with here. John's audience wasn't dealing with the Antichrist, who at the end of all things would arise to political and religious power. No, they were dealing with the many Antichrists right now. And so what John wants to help the church do then is be able to recognize who these many antichrists are. And so that's why John gives us two ways that we can recognize the antichrists. Two ways that we can recognize the antichrists. First of all, and this is the scary part, the antichrists are initially in the church. Just look at verse 19. It says, they went out from us, But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the first way that we can recognize the Antichrist is that they will rise up from within the church. They won't come from outside of the church. They will arise from within the church. And really, this shouldn't shock us too much because Paul actually warned the church of this Back in Acts chapter 20. Now you don't have to turn there, but let me just remind you that in Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the elders of the Ephesian church. And he does so with tears in his eyes because he loves them. And he knows that he's never going to see them again. And so here's what he says to them in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now listen to this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So you see, what John's hearers were experiencing was the very thing that Paul warned about. Wolves had arisen from among them, and they were speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away from Christ and his church. That's what was happening. But this brings up an important question. 
Are we to assume then that those who are falling away are actually losing their salvation? I mean, is that even possible? Well, John actually answers that question for us. In verse 19, he says, listen, they were never really of us. I mean, sure, they attended our worship services and took communion and were baptized and prayed with us and served with us. But you see, by falling away, by leaving the church, they've shown their true colors. They've shown their true allegiance. And it's not with us and with Christ. It's with the world. Because if they were truly of us, they would have remained. They would have endured. They would have persevered until the end. But you see, in leaving our number, they didn't lose their salvation. They just proved to us that they never had it to begin with. Now granted, there are people who leave the church for a season and then repent and return to the fold. That can actually happen to believers, to real believers. But you see, that's not who John is talking about here. He's talking about those who leave the church and never come back. And what John says of those people is that they were never truly saved. I mean, sure, they may have tasted of Christ. Sure, they may have sampled his goodness. But they were never truly united with him. And we know that because they've abandoned the church. So you see, what John is saying here is that those who are united to Christ can ultimately never leave the church. Because union to Christ necessitates union with his church. You can't separate the two. And so what that means then is that when someone leaves Christ's church and they never come back, what they're showing us is that they never really belonged to Christ in the first place. They went out from us because they were not of us. And we need to realize, church, that this can and will happen. In fact, John is telling us, expect it. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be saddened when it happens. But it does mean that we shouldn't be surprised when it happens either. And so the first way that John says we can recognize the Antichrist is by the fact that they are among us in the church, but eventually they depart from us and they never come back. And the second way that John says we can recognize the Antichrists is by their denial of Jesus. And we see that in verses 22 and 23. This is the liar. I'm sorry, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Now, if you're paying any attention at all at this point, then you realize that what John says about these antichrists is really in your face, isn't it? I mean, apparently John had never heard of political correctness because he's not saying that these folks are simply misguided or that they just need a a little bit more theological education, a little bit more theological tweaking. No, he calls them liars, He calls them antichrist because, again, remember, these folks are wolves. They have set themselves up against Christ. And you see, the primary way that they've done that is by denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And here's how they did that. They were denying 
that Jesus was fully human. And the reason we know that is because in John's day, Greco-Roman culture was heavily influenced by Gnosticism, just like our culture today is heavily influenced by evolution. And in a nutshell, here's what the Gnostics believed. They believed that the spiritual was good and that the material or physical was evil. And so because of that, they couldn't stomach the thought of God, who is pure spirit, becoming man who is material, because that would be a tainting of the Godhead. And so the way the Gnostics attempted to reconcile Christianity to their own beliefs is that they separated the man Jesus from the divine Christ. And so as a result, you didn't have two natures in one person, as the apostles taught. Instead, you had two persons and two natures and no union. In other words, Jesus appeared to be human. But really, that was, just, that was just an illusion. And so you see, this is how the Gnostics denied that Jesus was the Christ. Essentially, they were denying the incarnation. And guess what? If you deny the incarnation, then you don't have a biblical Jesus anymore. And if you don't have a biblical Jesus, then guess what else you don't have? A biblical gospel. Because you see, the good news is that Jesus is fully God and fully man who is mysteriously united in one person. And if you deny any part of that, then you don't have the gospel anymore. Because if Jesus isn't fully God, then you don't have a Savior who can bear the full weight of the Father's wrath for your sins. And if Jesus isn't fully man, then you don't have a Savior who can stand in your place as your substitute. He can't live the life you failed to, and he can't die the death you owed God, because only a God-man could do that. So you see, if we lose Jesus, then we necessarily also lose the gospel. But that's not the only thing we lose. John goes on to tell us that if we deny Jesus, we also lose The Father. That's what he says in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Because think about it. If Jesus isn't a fit mediator between God and man, then we can't know God as our Father. Because who taught us that God was our Father in the first place? It was Jesus. It was Jesus who taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And who was it that showed us the Father? It was Jesus. It was Jesus who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But you see, if we deny who Jesus is, and if we deny who the apostles say he is, then we lose all of that. We lose everything. Because you've got to understand, Christianity is not just a smorgasbord of beliefs where you get to pick and choose whatever you find palatable. No, to be a Christian is to submit yourself to God and his word, period. And you see, what John is doing here is he's screaming that in our ears. Because if Jesus is not who he says he is, and if he's not who the apostles say he is, then we're still in our sin. And we're still deserving of God's wrath. And we're still under the law. And we're still without a heavenly father. And we're still without a Messiah. Because you see, everything hinges on who Jesus is. And so that's why John is so blatant 
in his rejection of these antichrists because their aim is to deny Christ and to get others to do the same. And so John warns us that we should have none of it. Instead, he wants us to oppose the antichrists and everything that they stand for. And so to see what that looks like, let's answer our third and final question. How will the antichrists be opposed? Look at verses 24 through 27 with me. Excuse me. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, there's no denying that all this talk about the Antichrist can be a little disturbing, can't it? I mean, especially when you consider the fact that some of us who are here this morning may in time prove ourselves to be Antichrists. But as disturbing as all that is, we have to keep in mind that John didn't ultimately write this to disturb us. Ultimately, he wrote this as an encouragement to the church That as we honestly subject ourselves to this doctrinal test, we see that by God's grace, we pass. And so what that means then is that we don't have to sit around and endlessly examine ourselves. Instead, it is our privilege to be so taken with our Savior that our gaze is fixed on Him as He is revealed to us in the Word. And you see, what John is telling the church is that by doing this, they will actually be opposing the Antichrist. Because the main way that the church opposes the Antichrist is by abiding in the truth that they've heard from God. And so that's why John says in verses 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. But now here's the question. What is this truth that John says they'd heard from the beginning? What is the truth that he tells them to abide in? Well, quite simply, it's the gospel that John had the privilege of sharing with them. It's the good news about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so what John is saying here is abide in that truth. Hold fast to that confession because as you do so, understand that you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Because you see, what John is telling them is that truth is vital to fellowship. Because you can't just believe lies about a person and expect to have fellowship with them. No, you have to know the truth about who they are. And so what John says is, listen, You already know the truth about the Father and the Son because I've told it to you. So abide in that truth because as you abide in it, so too will you abide in the Father and the Son.
But here's the million dollar question. How do we account for the difference between those who leave the church and those who remain? Or to ask it another way, why did the Antichrist abandon the truth, but the believers abide in the truth? What's the difference? Is it because they're more moral or more intelligent or more spiritual or because they had a better upbringing? No, it's none of those things. And we know that because John actually tells us the reason for the difference back in verses 20 through 21. And here's what he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So you see, the reason for the difference is the anointing of the Holy One. That's what verse 20 says. But let me ask you, do you know what that anointing is? Or better yet, do you know who that anointing is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the anointing and Jesus is the Holy One who sends the Spirit upon us so that we can know Him. And you see, that's the reason why we know and abide in the truth. It's not because of anything in us. It's entirely because of God's grace as He has bestowed it upon us in the Holy Spirit. And so you see, that's why John goes on to say in verse 27, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now obviously, what John is not saying here is that we don't need teachers to instruct us about God. And we know that because if that's what John was saying, then he never would have written this letter. Because what's he doing in this letter? He's teaching us about God. So obviously that's not what John is saying here. Instead, what he's saying is that we don't need some secret teachings to be revealed to us because the Holy Spirit indwells us. So John says, listen, don't believe anyone who says that you need some special knowledge in order to have true fellowship with the Father and the Son because it's a lie. Because you already have all that you need since the Holy Spirit abides in you. And you already have all that you need in the gospel that you've heard and believed. And so abide in Him and hold fast to Him. Because as you do so, you will be opposing the antichrists, and their lies. But you know, as great as all that sounds, i got to be honest with you and tell you that it also scares me a little bit. Because I know how fickle my own heart is. And I know how often I turn away from God's word and believe the lies. Because that's a battle that we all fight as believers, isn't it? So then my question is, what confidence can I have that I will endure in this opposition to the Antichrist. Because if it's ultimately up to me, I'm not going to have much confidence. But you see, the beauty of this passage is that John tells us that we can know with absolute certainty that we will endure. And do you know how we can know that? We can know that because of verse 25. It says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 
So you see, what Jesus has promised is that he will cause us to endure until the very end in our opposition of the enemy. Because it is he who will keep us and cause us to persevere. Because he has promised us that we will have fellowship with our triune God from now and into eternity. And nothing, nothing, nothing can keep that from us. And I don't know about you, but that brings my soul unspeakable comfort in the midst of this opposition that we've been called to in the last hour. And so, brothers and sisters, please be aware. Heed the warnings of the Apostle John. We are in the last hour. And so we can expect Antichrist to appear amongst even our own number because some who claim The name of Christ will eventually deny him and abandon our fellowship. And they will try to deceive us as well. So let us hold fast to Christ. And let us hold fast to his word, knowing ultimately that it is Jesus who is holding fast to us. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit. And he has taught us the truth. And he promises us that he will grant to us eternal life. And because that's true, we can sing with absolute confidence the words of that beloved hymn, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not. I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never No, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it reveals these many truths to us about who you are, about the time in which we live and how we can expect things to unfold around us. And so first and foremost, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of living in these last days, in the last hour. What a privilege to live on this side of Jesus' first coming and his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered as your church to oppose the Antichrists. But Father, because we're in the last hour, we also know that we can expect opposition from those who hate you and hate us. And they hate us only because they hated you first. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us as you promise you will 
to hold fast to the good confession that was delivered to us through your word. We pray that we would hold fast to the gospel and the good news. We pray that we would not stray from your word, but that we would be those who, by the power of your Holy Spirit, rightly divide what you have revealed to us. And Father, we're thankful for the promise that you have delivered to us, that you will grant to us eternal life, that our fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and one another has begun now and that will last all into eternity. And so, Father, we pray that we would be faithful guardians of the gospel, that we would meditate on it day and night ourselves, that we would proclaim it to one another, and, Father, that we would proclaim it faithfully to those who do not know you here in Bakersfield, and in the United States in general, and, Father, to the ends of the earth. We may not all go, Father, but may we all be faithful to make sure that the gospel is sent forth in power. We pray that your Spirit would empower us this week to live in light of this last hour, to live in light of the Antichrist, and to proclaim your word to everyone we come into contact with, that your name might be exalted to the ends of the earth. We ask ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.